0: Open your Bibles to James, the book of James, chapter 2. The Lord has designed the church to be a living, breathing demonstration of the gospel, a proclamation by the very way that we exist together as a body of Christ. One of the primary ways that happens is by our inherent love for one another and unity within the body. Jesus prays, the night in which He was uh, being delivered up for crucifixion, He went to the garden and prayed for us. And um, He prayed that glory, the glory that had been given to Him would be given to us. He says in John 17, 22, that we may be one even as He is one with the Father. And in verse 23, I in them, you in Me, that we may be become perfectly one, so that the world will know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. That's God's design, has always been God's design, that we, the way that we interact with one another, the way that we demonstrate love and unity with one another, would be for a world that's looking on from the outside, it would be a living demonstration of of God's reconciling love with mankind. It would, it would give them a vivid picture in, in human form, in, in relational form, it would give them a vivid picture of exactly the way the gospel operates. If they just, if you were, opened the doors and looked inside of the church. The issue, of course, is that's not always the way it happens where the church ought to put on display supernatural unity, supernatural oneness, what often happens is that within the church, we are really little more than a reflection of a fractured and divided society that surrounds us. Within the body of Christ, we fracture along lines of social, racial, educational, economic differences. It can happen between different congregations as we know so well that Sunday morning remains, even today, one of the most racially segregated times in all of the week for America. But even within a congregation, it can happen. Within a single congregation. As people show favorites, as they show partiality towards some and ignore or avoid others as they fail to demonstrate in their actions and their behavior what God demonstrates so clearly and so beautifully in the gospel. Now this is the issue that James is concerned about as we enter into James chapter 2 this morning. He is concerned not just with the pragmatic in terms of how the church demonstrates a gospel witness, but he's concerned, you might say, soteriologically, or to put it another way, he's concerned not only corporately about the church, he's concerned about you individually. He's concerned about whether or not the way you interact with brothers and sisters within the church demonstrates whether you understand the gospel at all. He's already been talking about this issue of your personal salvation. He's already been talking about it in terms of a series of tests. He's, he's indicated that the way you respond in these tests can give you a lot of insight about whether or not you really know Christ, whether or not you're really saved. You can know by the way you respond to trials, whether you're a double-minded person, whether you have double-minded thoughts about God, or whether you're just a sort of a doubtful and superficial uh, poser as a believer you you can know by the way you respond to temptation you can know by the way you respond to the Word of God if you're just a a hearer or whether you're a doer of the Word well now he talks to us about another kind of test it's a test of unity it's a test of impartiality it's a test of prejudice a test of discrimination a test of favoritism Whatever form it takes, it's unfitting within the church and it's inconsistent for someone who claims to know God and claims to understand the gospel. And at the center of all of this is the issue of God Himself and His own impartiality. James takes our focus there because God Himself is impartial. He doesn't take into account all the things that you and I take into account. uh, The Scripture is crystal clear on this issue and repeatedly emphasizes it. For example, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, "...the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, great and mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, giving food and clothing." This is who God is. God is is totally totally impartial unlike you and I. Job 34: Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty who says to a king worthless one and to nobles wicked man who shows no partiality to princes nor regards the rich more than the poor for they are all the work of his hands. Acts 10 Peter says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. In other words, as God deals with mankind, as He interacts with us and He offers us salvation, as he as he doles out even his blessings, as God does whatever he does with mankind, he is absolutely unaffected by the things that affect us. He isn't impressed by whether someone's a king or a prince or a noble or a rich man or a poor man or whatever. It doesn't care about nationalities, about races, about background, about about any of that stuff that the scripture clearly suggests. Affects you and I on a daily basis. He doesn't look at the outward appearance of man. God's impartiality doesn't keep him back from blessing people. It doesn't, excuse me, his 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 he's not partial in such a way as to keep him back from blessing people or choosing people, saving people, working through people. He's unaffected by their status, rank, race, standing, whatever. Now, the key to understand this, I think, is to understand what God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel had been sent on a a task to anoint the next king of Israel. And he shows up at the home of Jesse, this gentleman in in the uh, area of Benjamin. He shows up there and he begins to survey all of the sons, these impressive men who are in the household of Jesse. And the first one that comes to him is Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. And Eliab was an impressive man himself. He was was good-looking, a man of stature, and we presume accomplishment already at his age. By outward appearance, he was everything that you could imagine a king ought to be. And based on what he saw... Samuel made a judgment. He assumed right away, without really even interviewing the guy, without talking to him, without finding out what's in his heart and his mind and his character, or any of those things, he made a snap decision that this is the man who will be the, king, uh, the next king of Israel. But God tells him in 1 Samuel 6-7, do not look on his appearance or on the height Of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, of course, we know the rest of the story. Samuel stays there and surveys all the rest of Jesse's sons, every one of them the Lord rejects until finally. Uh, Jesse believes he's shown everything he has, and Samuel says, do you not have any other sons? And Jesse said, well, I, there is my youngest son, he's, he, but he's out in the field tending the sheep. His name is David. David comes in, and of course the Lord chooses him. Sheep herder was not a prestigious position. It wasn't thought of as something that uh, you gave to your high-caliber people. These were the despised people, typically. They were the positions of low esteem in Jewish society. They were dirty. They were generally filled with unskilled labor. This was not the pick of the crop. But this is the profound difference between the Lord and you and me. God never takes into account all that outward stuff. God never takes into account what the outward eye sees. He never takes into account all that, that society attaches in terms of meaning to your status and your wealth and your education and your race and your rank in society or whatever it might be. God doesn't look at the outward appearance but at the heart. And because of that... God is not always making these false assumptions and false judgments that you and I make based on all of those prejudices and all of those presuppositions we have about all of these people. And because of that, because God doesn't look at the outward appearance but at the heart, he, he, what He's doing in His work of building the church is He is building the church with people that the world would not necessarily choose. He's building the church with people whose outward appearance doesn't necessarily tell the story of what's taking place in their heart. Now James, this is the message that James wants you and I to understand when it comes to this issue of favoritism and partiality he wants, in the way that you associate with people, for you to demonstrate the fact that you recognize God is at work equally in all kinds of people, all walks of life, especially in those people who would tend to be marginalized and overlooked, especially for James Among the poor. And this is what James says in verse 1 My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He's promised to those who love Him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich The ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James very clearly is dealing with the sin of partiality. He talks about it in verse 1. He talks about it down in verse 8 and verse 9. He's dealing with partiality. He's dealing with favoritism. And he's dealing with it, especially as it relates to the poor, because it is one of the, you might say, universal ways that partiality expresses itself, no matter what Uh, nation, no matter what time period you enter into, this is one of the universal ways that you find favoritism manifest within the church. And so James confronts this. He confronts the evil of partiality, giving us six reasons to renounce favoritism and to treat all people equally in the love of Christ. Now the first and the most basic Reason to renounce favoritism is given to us there in verse 1. And that is because favoritism is incompatible with faith in Christ. Favoritism is incompatible with faith in Christ. My brothers, he says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't try to combine Some profession of faith, some profession of love for God, and at the same time, hold on to your deference towards the wealthy. Don't hold on to ongoing prejudice and discrimination. Don't hold on to ongoing favoritism and try to combine that with faith in Christ. They are mismatched. They are at conflict with one another. There is an inherent clash when you try to do that. Because at the outset, you have to recognize that Jesus himself was impartial. I mean, the bulk of his ministry was with the marginalized people of society. One of the chief criticisms he received was, was the fact that he welcomed sinners and he welcomed people who were ostracized. He welcomed the poor and he welcomed the diseased. He welcomed the, the handicapped. He welcomed the sinners. He himself was a subject of mockery and discrimination because of his status. In John 7, they questioned him because he was uneducated. In John 8, they They implied his birth was illegitimate and he had no legal status, at least in their society. In Matthew 13, they mocked him because he was the simple son of a carpenter. Jesus declared himself that he was so poor he had nowhere to lay his head. He was himself the object of discrimination. And listen, no one would know this better than James, the man who wrote this letter who was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up in the same household as Jesus. He understood the social and the economic uh, framework and status that Jesus grew up under. He understood the poverty that Jesus would have known. That they came from humble backgrounds. And yet here is James, and he refers to him as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Meaning that no matter what his outward appearance was, he was and is glorious. It might have been veiled for a period of time by what you could see with your eyes. It may not have been visible whenever people looked at his clothing or his background or his education. All of that stuff would have been cause for people to misjudge the glory that was there. And they did. They did. As the Scripture says, they esteemed Him not. There was no natural esteem for Him. There was no natural glory. Jesus had laid all of that aside. And so He prays the night before you go to the cross in John 17, Now, Father, glorify Me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There was glory. But it was a glory that was hidden. A glory that had, been, that had been laid aside or suspended in some sense. Hidden behind the humble existence in human flesh. Hidden behind lowly status. Hidden behind poverty. Wasn't on full display. But no matter what the appearance that was here on earth, no matter what people's perception of Him was on the outward. And there was apparently nothing notable about Jesus, especially for the first 30 years of His life. Nothing that society latched onto that would have drawn Him out and exalted Him. Nothing. And yet He is now the one who sits on the throne of heaven, exalted, In full glory. You couldn't have seen all that simply by looking at Him. You couldn't have understood all that with the typical attitude of partiality. And at the very beginning, that makes such a claim in faith in Jesus Christ incompatible with this attitude of favoritism. It it communicates whenever you behave with that kind of prejudice and discrimination and favoritism, it communicates right at the outset that you probably do not understand the Lord that you're claiming to love. And so James is telling you, do not hold on to Jesus and partiality and favoritism at the same time. The word he uses for partiality, prosolopempsia is the word. It literally talks about looking at a person's face instead of, say, for example, the facts of a case. This was a word that was used to speak of judges who would do this. They would, they would see two people come into a courtroom in those days... And without even hearing the facts of the case, they would have decided already who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Just by looking at them. In fact, such a thing was acceptable in some cases, it was codified. In Roman society, you were, as a judge, you were instructed to take into account someone's social status along with the evidence of a case. You were supposed to show favoritism. In their corrupt and warped society. People of certain rank and stature expected that. They expected to be treated better. And if you didn't treat them better, they would be offended. But James is saying you can't be like that. You... If you want to hold faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot allow yourself to evaluate men and women based on outward appearances. You can't combine faith with favoritism. To do that is to portray the gospel. It would suggest that you don't understand what the gospel is all about. That you don't get that the Lord is concerned with the inner man. And it could reveal that you're deceived yourself about what the Lord is looking for. But James quickly tells us this is a second reason to renounce favoritism favoritism is indicative of evil intentions, it's indicative of evil intentions. He says in verse 2, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So there's this hypothetical situation, he says, if this happens, and then he responds to it with a series of rhetorical questions. The hypothetical situation he pictures is someone entering into the assembly, literally the synagogue, and, and this is notable because synagogues were, as we know, the place where Jews gathered to worship. This is actually written to Christians, and it may indicate that this, because it's perhaps the earliest Christian document, that at this point, Christians still found themselves at least gathering in synagogues. They had been scattered already. Persecution had thrust them out of Jerusalem in the late 30s, and they had scattered all back to their towns and villages all over the Roman Empire. They would not have had church buildings. In many cases, they probably wouldn't have had Uh, anywhere formal to meet. So the synagogue was the natural place. And by the way, on Sunday, it would have been vacant. Jews gathered on Saturday, on the Sabbath. So it's very possible that they were still gathering in these synagogues, which met for all kinds of purposes. They used them for schools and community meetings and courthouses and all that stuff. And so, so maybe the Christians were still using these buildings. And synagogues were designed all the same way. Everyone that we have discovered and uncovered have all been designed the same way. They all have benches that run along the sides. And sometimes they might have two or even three rows of benches that rise on either side. But there weren't enough spots for everyone to sit. And so most of the people, when you would gather at the synagogue, most of the people would sit on the floor. But you'd have those people who were given those Those better seats, the seats that were sort of elevated, they were above, they were visible, they were all those things. These were what Jesus, remember, condemned the Pharisees for wanting the best seats in the synagogues. Well, these were the better seats. They were the ones that kind of raised you above, if you will, the hoi polloi. And so he pictures this situation where a man walks in from the community, and and he is He is obviously a man of wealth. People are so excited to see this guy come through the door. I mean, first of all, he he comes in and he's wearing a gold ring or rings. It was typical in these days for people to wear rings to demonstrate their status. You may remember when the prodigal son returned home. What did the father want to do? He wanted to put a ring on his finger to immediately demonstrate that he was He was a legitimate heir, again, of inheritance. This was something that Epicetus, one of the Greek writers, even talks about a guy who in his community would walk around with a gold ring on every single finger. I mean, people put on display their wealth. This is one of the ways they didn't have fancy cars necessarily to drive and they couldn't carry around their gadgets, but they would really dole themselves up with the jewelry. And James actually uses a really unique word here, literally translated gold finger, indicating probably that this man had multiple rings on one finger. He just stacked them up to show how wealthy he was. And not only that, he was in bright clothing, lampra, from which obviously we get our word lamp. It was used to talk about the heavenly bodies and how they shone in the skies. This guy was wearing bright, shining clothing. This again was a sign of the rich because it was so costly to manufacture colors and dyes in these days. And so people that wore bright and colorful clothing did so to put on display their wealth. And so this guy enters wearing this expensive, bright clothing with all of these rings, and you can't miss him. And at the same time, a guy enters who is poor. And again, James uses vivid terminology. He's not saying that this is guy this is a guy who who simply has little and so he has to kind of live sparingly he has to tighten his budget a little bit that's not the word he uses he uses a word for someone who is destitute we might even say indigent so poor not only that he has to Skimp, he doesn't even have a job. Most of the times, this is a word that applies to people who don't even work. They are literally beggars. That's how they survive. And so they walk in. This guy walks in, and immediately he's recognized for his economic and social status. He is in shabby clothing literally filthy the word is filthy it's used most of the time to refer to moral filth a filthy mind or a filthy life josephus uses uses it to describe someone on the side of the road who hasn't bathed in several days and hasn't washed his clothes clothes in a long time and his hair is all matted with filth and dirt that's the word he uses to describe that guy's clothing And so when James uses this word, he's probably talking about someone who comes in and they only got one set of clothes. And they've been in that set of clothes all week long. They have worked in it. They have sweated in it. They have slept in it. They've done everything in it and it all comes through the door with them. They are stinky and unpleasant to be around. So this guy walks in and he smells and he's grubby all over. And people respond accordingly. James describes what is not difficult to imagine, it takes place all the time. Without ever knowing what is going on in each person's heart, you make assumptions. Whether engaging, without engaging them or talking to them, you make assumptions judgments about their heart and their character worse than that james says you treat them with certain calculations he says if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing you say sit here in the good seat the the elevated seat the seat that might catch the breezes and and be more comfortable and give you a better view you sit up there in the good seat and then you say to the poor man you sit down there at my feet it's a typical synagogue, typical seating arrangement. James says, In fact, you have made distinctions and become judges with evil thoughts, evil motives, evil intentions. He uses the word for judging here, I think intentionally. It's a word that can mean making judgments in general, but it certainly was a word that was used to speak about the judicial system and a system where judges themselves became corrupt and made decisions based on calculations for kickbacks and favors and even bribes. And it's condemned over and over and over again. Whether it's in the law or the wisdom literature Or the prophets. It was an ongoing issue in ancient society and in Israel. Exodus 33. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in a lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Proverbs the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. Uh, that's 17.23, Proverbs 28.21. To show partiality is not good. For a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. I mean, it just get to what's in our heart. Showing partiality because we're calculating how this is going to put more bread on the table for us. And James is saying, if you treat people this way, have you not become like these judges? Are you any better than them? They show favor to a certain person in hopes of getting something in return. They have evil motives and evil thoughts and evil intentions. And this is what James is suggesting is at play when you show favoritism to someone based on their outward appearance, based on their wealth or based on their race or based on whatever, their background, if you show favoritism for any of that stuff, you are doing it with evil thoughts, hoping that somehow their social connections will bring you some sort of favor in return. Maybe if it's the rich, you're hoping you'll get financial favors. Or maybe you want the social status of being associated with them. You want to be able to drop their name with your friends. Or maybe you want them to introduce you to their network. And all of that stuff is detestable to the Lord. All of it reveals a heart that trusts in the flesh and not in the Lord. And all of it is indicative of evil motives. And it has no place in the church none of it reflects the values that are central to the gospel. Which is why, by the way, James gives us the third reason to renounce favoritism. Because favoritism is inconsistent with the way God has worked. Favoritism is inconsistent with the way God has worked. He says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He's promised to those who love Him. God has chosen the poor. Not exclusively. There certainly are those who have been wealthy that God has chosen. There certainly are those who are wealthy that God has used. Abraham was a wealthy man. Job was perhaps the wealthiest man in the world. There was Barnabas who was wealthy and had Tracks of land that he could sell to help those who were underprivileged. There was Joseph of Arimathea who had a tomb that he donated for Christ's burial and later became actively involved with the church. There was Lydia who was a seller of purple and expensive clothing in Philippi. There were wealthy people in the church. That's not the issue. The issue is that those are not typical. The early church was filled with needy people. It was filled with people who needed financial assistance. You may remember one of the first controversies of the church in Acts chapter 6 was the struggle of knowing how to provide for all the poor widows that filled the church, that daily they had to take and feed and provide for. wealthy people, the few that were in the church, had to sell their they had to liquidate their possessions, their land, in order to feed and house these needy ones. This was so pronounced that by the time you get to the second century, a hundred years after the church, or 150 years after the church was launched, somewhere in that time frame, there was a scathing critique of Christianity by an anti-Christian philosopher named Celsus. In his critiques found themselves effective in Roman society as people, people picked them up and quoted them over and over again. And this is what he says about Christians. This is what he says is their requirement for membership. He, he pictures Christians saying, quote, let no one come to us Who has been instructed or who is wise or prudent, for such qualifications are deemed evil by us. But if there are any who are ignorant or unintelligent or uninstructed or foolish persons, let them come with confidence. Celsus goes on. By which words, acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their God, they manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain over only the silly, the lowly, the stupid with women and children. End quote. Obviously not a very high view of women there. In other words, Christians, not only are they ignorant and simpletons and uneducated, But all they can really accomplish is attracting the poor. Well, the reason that was so effective is because it was partially true. That is the early church. That is how it began and how it existed for the first several hundred years or a few hundred years of its existence before the corruption of Roman Catholicism came in. This is what characterized it. It was by and large not a well-to-do group of people. It wasn't a place for the well-connected and influential. It wasn't a place that was characterized by the rich These are the people, the the well-connected and the wealthy people were typically the ones who had no time and place for the church. They were typically the ones who mocked it, who criticized it, who resented it. Jesus himself defined the gospel in a way that only makes sense when it attracts the poor. He said, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, of course, he's not suggesting that God is biased against the rich. He's not suggesting that God is partial. He's not suggesting that God takes into account any of that stuff that is on the outside. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not suggesting that God makes a person's financial status the decisive factor over whether or not they're saved or godly. The term poor is more theological than it is economic in that sense. It's used over and over in the Psalms and the Proverbs as not the opposite of the rich, but the opposite of the proud. David himself, who was king... Often referred to himself as needy, or it could very well be translated as poor. This refers to those whose sole help is God. They see that for all of the outward resources that might be available in the world, they see that their sole source of help is God alone. They have no other other place to turn. It is, in other words, not those who have very little to offer to God. It is those who have nothing to offer to God. They come to God the way that every person must come to God. They come to God declaring to God that they are spiritually bankrupt. Now this is what Jesus says is indicative of people. This is, in fact, what is is necessary for everyone who enters into the kingdom of God. Everyone, if you are going to enter into the kingdom of God, if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God, if you're going to be saved, you must reach this point of spiritual impoverishment, you must reach this point where you recognize that you have nothing to offer to God. It doesn't matter if the world heaps accolades on you. It doesn't matter if the world gawks at you and looks at you. It doesn't matter what your notoriety is. doesn't matter any of that outward stuff. When you enter into the kingdom of God, you enter into it on the same plane, the same status as every other person, no matter what their social status, you enter in as a spiritual beggar. The issue is that sometimes wealth and sometimes social status impede someone from seeing that reality. They assume that because they get the attention of everyone else, else, they assume that because they have the praise of everyone else, they assume because everyone else is clamoring for their opinion and their feedback and their help and all this other stuff, they assume that therefore God would clamor for them as well. But Jesus says, no, it's only those who come in a state of spiritual poverty. The antithesis of the self-reliance and self-confidence that so often is bred by wealth. James is saying the same thing. He's saying the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Consider your calling, brothers, not many of you wise according to worldly standards not many of you powerful not many of you noble by birth but God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God's chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong God has chosen what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God this is those who enter the kingdom. So, what James is saying, what Paul says, what Jesus says, is that God isn't like you. He is not interested in people based on their fame, their prestige, their looks, their job, their wealth and social status, all that stuff means nothing to God. But unfortunately, it means a lot to us. And people cling to it and seek after it. And it can prevent God from working in your life if you never get to the place where you understand your spiritual poverty. Poverty. So James says, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Hasn't God already demonstrated that stuff doesn't matter? Hasn't God already demonstrated that he is actually working and choosing and making the poor destined to be heirs of the kingdom? They are destined to be rich. They will inherit thrones and authority and all that comes with the position of an heir to the kingdom. They will come and they will inherit all that. So it doesn't matter what you see right now. It doesn't matter what you judge on outward appearance. That doesn't matter. Those are the eyes that you have to look at when you look at the poor. Those are the eyes, I should say, you have to look through. Those are the eyes that you have to use, the eyes that understand that God has chosen the poor to be rich. God has chosen those who know nothing to know everything. God has chosen those who are despised to be honored above all. The fourth reason James gives us to renounce favoritism the show no partiality is because favoritism is ignorant of the typical response of the rich. It's ignorant of the typical response of the rich. Verse 6 You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you in the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name? by which you were called. James is basically saying, look, if you're if you're clamoring after and bending over backwards and doing everything you can to accommodate you are fooling yourself. You are fooling yourself. You're ignorant. Now, of course, he's speaking here, again, proverbially, generally. He's not saying every rich person does this or every rich person responds in this way any more than he's saying that every poor person is going to be in the kingdom of heaven. But he's drawing a connection between the way you are behaving by shunning the poor And showing favoritism towards the rich. He's drawing a connection between what you're doing in dishonoring the poor. And the work that is typically done by the arrogant, proud, worldly, rich person. They're the ones who typically organize themselves to tyrannize the church. They resent the church. It is the church that with its moral voice highlights their corruption, highlights their greed, highlights their immorality and their malice. And so they grow resentful. And when they have opportunity, they oppress. History, of course, Bears that out if you look at the great persecutions, the great movements to stamp out the church and stamp out the gospel. It is always driven by those with power and with comforts in this life. History bears it out, but so does logic. Because the, the, the poor simply don't have the resources to oppress anyone. They don't have the means and most of the time they don't even have the inclination to do it. But James says it is the rich. They're the ones who oppress you and drag you. Literally, the word is drag. It it describes someone who who is being moved against their will. It was was used to describe the the, uh, Pharisees literally dragging the apostles before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. Or later on, they drug Paul before the Roman governor. So so this is a, a forcible removal or forcible persecution. And it's the wealthy who have the means to leverage themselves in such a way as to impose their will on others, and they have done it often against Christians. And James adds that they're the ones also who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Again, not every wealthy person but it is characteristic of the rich to disregard the Lord and dishonor His name. And the main point James is making is that when you dishonor the poor, you are joining in with the oppression. You're already starting down the road that defines these arrogant rich. You're already demonstrating what, what is in their heart is also alive in yours. So, favoritism, it's inconsistent with your profession of faith. You can't hold faith in the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, with that kind of attitude. Because all that outward stuff, none of it matters when it comes to the gospel. You should know that. You should demonstrate that in the way that you deal with people. It's the heart. It's the inner man. It's the unseen part where God might be putting on display His most amazing, glorious, beautiful work that if you take the time to go beyond your prejudices, Go beyond your partiality that if you take the time to find out what's going on on the inside, you might very well find that you've got the world upside down. And when you do that, you will put on display just like Jesus prayed. You will put on display before watching the world what the gospel looks like, bringing everyone to the foot of the cross at equal standing. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Two more reasons that James has for us that we'll get to next time. Father, we can only confess our weakness. We can only confess the blindness by which we operate. When we gravitate for our own ill motives and for our own sinful reasons, we gravitate towards those who are wealthy and can show us favors. But give us the heart of our Savior. Make us a church that is defined by that. Help us to look on others with gospel eyes looking for the inner work that you're doing not the outward marks that society would label people with or well, we need that we need it as a sanctifying work in our lives we need it as an as a a work to stir our worship. We need to understand and contemplate, meditate every day just how unworthy we were. How unfitted we were, no matter what our outward status, to be received by You. And so, Lord, help us to receive one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.